Last week, we started John chapter 5 and uh, looked at the first 15 verses. There we saw where Jesus goes from Galilee, the northern part of the country, and he travels all the way down to Jerusalem for one of the three pilgrimage feasts. It was probably one of the three of the seven. There were pilgrimage feasts. They were the, the sort of the, the, the larger feasts than the rest. And so he's down there. It doesn't tell us what feast it is. It's probably the Feast of Pentecost because it's 50 days after Passover. And we saw where he was at the Passover in an earlier chapter. So he travels down there and he goes to this place called the Pool of Bethesda. And the Pool of Bethesda was north of the Temple Mount by the Sheep Gate where they brought the sheep in for the sacrifices. And he goes right into this pool, which was a large complex. It wasn't just a, like a, a pool like we would go to somebody's pool. It, it, would, it would be a pretty large place, hundreds of people. It says there was a great multitude of people there that were sick, that were infirmed in one way or the other, crippled, lame, you know, uh, paralyzed. And, and he goes to this guy, he goes to one guy, and he doesn't just go to anybody. He goes to one man that he, in his foreknowledge, knew. We talked about that, uh, that he would go and he would go to this one guy and he simply asked him a question. Do you want to be made well? We talked about that. We talked about how not everybody wants to be made well for a variety of reasons, especially when it comes to spiritual things. That men's hearts are dark, that they would rather have darkness than light. We saw in an earlier study where Men's deeds are evil and they want to be under the veil of darkness in their own lives and they don't want to be made well from sin. So we see here where Jesus, he goes to this guy, he heals one man and there's hundreds of guys there. He heals one and then he leaves so quickly, this guy doesn't even get a chance to identify who he is. And so the guy goes out and he's carrying his bed, remember, and the Jews get on him. The, the religious leaders, remember when we talk about Jews in the gospel of John, it's not the Jews in general, it's when it, John talks about the Jews, it's the religious leaders, it's, it's essentially the guys that were opposed to him. And we'll see that increasing today in the message today. So as he goes, uh, the religious leaders come to this guy and they say, you know, who healed you? And he says, I don't know. And uh, there's some in interaction there. We see that Jesus didn't stop there. Even though he left the pool of Bethesda, he tracks this guy down in the temple. And when he tracks the guy down in the temple, he says, listen, Go and sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. We looked at that. We looked at what a worse thing is. And God is serious about sin. He's serious about sin in our lives. He's serious about sin in general. We see so often that people, especially in the Gospel of John as we're looking at it, people look at the fact that he does these signs and wonders, he does these miracles, but their faith falls short because they're after the sensational, not after having their sins forgiven. We're going to see more of that as we get into chapter 6 with the feeding of the 5,000, because Jesus is very blunt there, and he says, you seek me because you saw the signs, not because I can forgive your sins. You're happy because I fed you, and we'll get into that then. But here we see that Jesus didn't go to gratify the sign seekers, and he still doesn't. And the reason why, and, and you know... <laughs> I'm not making this stuff up. It's God's word. We've already seen a number of places in just these five chapters where Jesus is very resistant to the people that are after signs and wonders as an end unto themselves. If he'd have stayed at the pool of Bethesda, he would have had a circus on his hands if people lined up or screaming for him. I mean, it, would, it just would have been a mess. 
So you might ask, why does Jesus heal some in the New Testament? Why does he just give physical healing to some, to a few, really, even though he did a lot of healing throughout his earthly ministry? And it's because I believe that that there's something telling in that, and we'll see that as we go along this morning, in that he, in his first coming, came to deal with sin. In his second coming, what does the Bible tell us? It says, there will be no more sickness. There will be no more pain. He'll wipe away every tear from our eyes. And yes, this life is hard. We live on an un... uh, We live on a fallen world. It, It has been purchased. But Jesus doesn't take it back until we see further in the book of Revelation where the title deed... Uh, comes into his hands and he starts to begin to loose the seals. And every time he tears off a seal off the title deed to the earth, his judgment is poured out upon the earth. So we live on this fallen planet. So he comes to reveal that his will is, he is always dealing with sin in the New Testament. In, in the narratives that we see in the Gospels, he's always dealing with sin. So is the Apostle Paul. Not always dealing with healing, even though that's a part of it. And, and the question becomes, why? And it's because in his first coming, as a suffering servant, he came to die for sin. We know that. If, if you've been around the church for any length of time at all, you know that. I mean, that's a given. But he didn't conceal the fact that in his second coming, he is going to deal with sickness. He does have the power. He does have the ability. And he does defy the laws of physics. I mean, he speaks a word. We'll look at it this morning more. He speaks a word and it happens. Molecules rearrange. I, you know, it's amazing how he does that. And yes, there's a wow factor to it. But he wanted people to be wowed about the fact that he could forgive sin. Yes, he gives sort of previews. He gives these sort of these vignettes as he goes along and shows us what it's going to be like in the age to come. But in this age, it's sin. And if you don't believe that, look around. I mean, just look around. It's getting darker and darker. Our culture is just in the toilet. Sorry for the language there, but it is. It's terrible out there. I mean, you just, you, you turn on the news, you read the paper, you go on the internet, whatever it is. There is just so much evil. But he said that's how it would be in the last days iniquity would abound. And in the last days, men's hearts would grow cold. But they would wax cold. I like that in the King James. And, and so his purpose for us in this is that we see that he has the power. Yes, he absolutely has the power to heal. But that is secondary because that brings a temporary solution I, the, every person that is healed will live to die again. We've talked about that before. But every person whose sins are forgiven, there's something way bigger that's going on, huh? That's what he's about. That's why we see these healings. Like he goes, heals one guy and leaves. And he goes and he heals this nobleman's son from a distance. He heals, the, I mean, every time you see him healing, it's a spot deal. It's kind of, it's something he does there on the spot. There are always more sick people. But you got to realize that that's not his emphasis. I look out, again, I look at the spiritual landscape in our country, and, it, and it's kind of sickening in some ways, guys. And while I resist things that sort of paint us as an exclusive group, because I, you know we're part of the body of Christ, we're not the body of Christ, I also look out and I see that there's a lot of doctrine out there that's really bad. 
there's a lot of doctrine that has to do with healing that's really bad. I remember talking to uh, an elderly guy that my wife had reached out to when his wife was passing away from cancer, and he ended up coming to the Lord. And I remember uh, hearing him be taught that it's a matter of how much faith you have as to whether someone's healed. And my heart was just grieved. I'm thinking, is that guy sitting there wondering, gee, if I'd have just believed more, maybe if I'd have come to Christ a little earlier, my wife would be alive. I mean, head trips, condemnation, stuff that is, there's no place for that truly in God's economy, and yet people are preaching that kind of a message. And, and I gotta be careful because I get angry about it. I really don't like to hear that kind of thing, and I won't be a part of a group that puts that kind of doctrine forward. And I think that's a healthy thing. Okay, none of that was planned, so we'll go on with the. <laughs> when Jesus tells this guy, sin no more, do you think he never sinned again? I don't think so. And I don't think that's what Jesus intended when he said that. What he was saying is leave a, live a life that is not marked by sin, but it's marked by holiness. It's marked by personal, practical holiness, doing the right thing. That's what righteousness is. And, and when our lives are marked by that, I mean, if he, if he literally meant don't go sin anymore, go and sin no more, he wouldn't have given instruction in Matthew 5 saying, our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name. And, and going on to say, forgive us this day for our trespasses. And oh, by the way, forgive those that trespass against us. He wouldn't have given instruction to pray daily for forgiveness for the areas where we blow it. And yet, we should never ever be in a place where we allow our understanding to be short, to fall short of what God's intention is for his grace being poured out. Is absolutely we're saved by grace and we're not saved by good works. And we'll look at that more. But we have to have an understanding that, and, and Paul says, he talks about in Romans, I'm not gonna go there, I'm tempted to, but got a lot of ground to cover this morning. He, he, the, the Romans essentially said, well, in, in view of God's grace, is it okay to keep sinning? And, and it's an honest question from some people that were not grounded in, in the Lord. And, and he said, God forbid, may it never be. How shall someone who has died to sin still live in it? And so when he tells this guy, go and sin no more, he's essentially telling him, look, don't let your life be marked by sin. Be different live a life that's set apart. And that's what he calls you and I to. Living a life that's set apart. Am I gonna blow it? Yeah. Do I wanna blow it? No. Do I want my light to so shine before men to glorify my Father in heaven? Absolutely. That's the design. That's what he's putting forth with this guy. When he says, lest a worse thing come upon you, we saw certain warnings in God's word last week. I'm not going to go into them again. There are warnings where worse things do happen because he is that serious about sin, especially when someone mocks him. I mean, it's one thing for an unbeliever to live a life of sin and, and just be abandoned to sin. There's no consciousness of sin. But for people in the body of Christ, he says, look, if you want to sow to the flesh, you're going to reap from the flesh. And if you want to continue to do that, you're essentially mocking me. He says, be not deceived. God is not mocked. That which a man sows, he'll also reap. And in doing so, you're inviting, if you're a believer, you're inviting his chastising hand to come upon you. And sometimes those chastisements can be severe. 
just some sobering thoughts about trying to flirt with sin as a believer. We saw last week the guy healed at the Pool of Bethesda. This week we're going to talk about the, the fact that Jesus healed this guy on the Sabbath. And we're also going to look at his relationship, the relationship that he has between himself and the Father. In verse 16, we read, For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. The Jews had, as we've talked about before, they had so codified and so missed the intent of God's law, the law of Moses, that they had boiled it down, sealed it down to things that it really didn't say. And here Jesus heals this guy, and they're really uptight with the guy that was carrying his bed. They have no, there's no aspect of them celebrating the fact that this guy had been healed from something he had been packing around for 38 years. I mean, talk about a reason to rejoice. But no, they're, hey man, it's not lawful for you to carry your bed. So they felt that he desecrated the Sabbath when truly what was happening is they had distorted the Sabbath. Think about it, guys. The Sabbath, God implemented the Sabbath not so that people could come into this regulation that deals with inaction from work. I've mentioned before, you don't want to be in Israel on a Saturday, but you don't want to try to get on an elevator because it stops at every floor. You can't push a button without them characterizing that as you're working on the Sabbath and shame on you. What on earth does that have to do with God's heart? And, and so... It's not about inaction from work, it's about satisfaction with work that's well done. Look back at the creation. Was God tired after six days? Of course not. He's God. He doesn't get tired. But it says on the seventh day he rested. He looked out over all that he had done and all that he had created and he was satisfied. It says over and over again, and he did this and it was good. And he did that and it was good. The only time it says it's not good is not good for man to be alone and he fixes that. He creates woman and that was good. And so then he rests. So we see that Jesus knew when he intentionally set this up to break the Sabbath in their eyes, he did it on purpose. He engineered this by healing a man on a Saturday. He did it on purpose. He didn't go, oh, my bad. I really messed up there. I healed this guy and it's the Sabbath. You know, no, he didn't do that. He marched in there on purpose and he waited till Saturday probably to heal him because he knew that would stir these guys up and it would give him some teachable moments. When we're looking at the person of Jesus, we looked at three things last week. We looked at the unparalleled knowledge of Jesus. We looked at the amazing compassion of Jesus and the sovereign power of Jesus when he healed this guy. Now we're going to move into another passage or another section of John chapter 5, and what we're going to look at is Jesus being equal with God. And we'll see three things here. It's broken up into three parts. And uh, again, I kind of like to break things down into bite-sized nuggets so that they're easier to chew on. Uh, we'll see equality with God in nature in verses 17 and 18. We'll see equality with God in power in verses 19 through 21. And then we'll see equality with God in authority in verses 22 through 30. So looking at equality with God in nature, verse 17, but Jesus answered them, 
and said, my father has been working until now and I have been working. He's saying, I do this because I'm a reflection of my father. Hebrews chapter 1 says, God in past times spoke to us in, through the prophets and the fathers, many portions, many ways, but now has spoken to us in his son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he created the cosmos, the world. And he says, there, he says he's the exact radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, that Jesus is truly equal with God. That's what the writer of Hebrews says and that's what Jesus is saying when he says this, my father's been working and I've been working. He says, I'm working on the Saturday, on the Sabbath because my father works on the Sabbath. Um, Back to the account in Genesis, if you think about it, that God had this Sabbath rest after the creation. And that Sabbath was broken when man fell. And from that point, we've talked about it before, if you look at redemptive history, you have the first couple of chapters, three chapters in Genesis, where God creates everything, he puts everything in motion, Creates man, creates woman, and he says, okay, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the center of the garden. Stay away from that. Have dominion over everything else, and we're good. And man falls. And you know the story. I mean, if you've been a Christian for long, you know the whole account of the fall of man. And in redemptive history, so everything starts out really good, and in a very short amount of time, things go really badly. Virtually the rest of God's word is devoted and dedicated to God's work in making things right, setting things right. That's why Jesus came. So when he says, my father has been working until now, he means it. Because God has continued to work down through the ages. He's working now, today, in drawing men's hearts unto himself. And so when Jesus says this, he's revealing something about God, that God is actively working in, in, in the, the, the work of redeeming men's souls. Yes, the act of redemption was accomplished at the cross, and now through the agency of the Holy Spirit, he is out touching, wooing, that with that we talk about, the with, in, and upon, the three different aspects of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that before a person comes to Christ, that he is with them, and he is showing them their own depravity, showing them perhaps their bankruptcy, showing them their spiritual leanness. Tuesday nights, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount in the men's group, and uh, I've been looking at, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who see just how poor they really are, and who are broken over their own sin. Blessed are those who mourn. I mean, you look at this progression there. And there's an emptying that goes on as God reveals himself to people. And be, that he could fill them with himself. And so when Jesus says, my father's been working until now. And I've been working. He is establishing co-equality with the father. But he's also saying that since the creation, since that time. Uh, that God has been working to repair an unredeemed earth. Now, as I mentioned, he redeemed humanity and he, he purchased the right to redeem the earth. But we see in Romans that the earth is subjected to futility. In other words, we still live on a fallen planet. As redeemed people, we live in an unredeemed place. He will take care of that in the future. And we have lots of glimpses and previews in God's word about that. Talked about some of them this morning already. And yet right now, that's when he's working. 
Verse 18, therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. The theological understanding of this, guys, very important because we don't want to be springboarding from bad doctrine. If we look at the nature of God and, and that God, the father, God, the son, God, the spirit, they are co-equal. Okay. Not one is less than the other. Not one is an emanation from, but they're equal. They're co-equal. And if you want to get to know God, get to know Jesus because he is fully God. How do you do that? Through the agency of the Holy Spirit. He's fully God. You see, we don't understand that. We, and people call God on the carpet. It's like, I don't understand how that works. Who said you have to? I mean, it, that's an infinite concept. It's, it's something that is birthed in God, who is an infinite God. And we are finite people. And we can only go so far in our understanding before, man, smoke starts coming out of our ears. We just can't get there from here. And so whenever you have... Again, I've mentioned this before. I'll mention it again because it's so important. Don't ever be afraid to say, I don't understand that. Because whenever you have infinite God and finite man bumping up against infinite God, you have one word that results and that's mystery. I don't get it. I don't understand it. But that I don't understand it, I am certainly not going to put God into subjection to my ability to reason. How foolish is that? That I don't understand it doesn't mean it's not so. The, when he says that it says that he's making himself equal with God, interesting, in, in Greek, it's a present perfect tense verb. You don't need to know that, but what it means is he's saying he's continually equal with God. He wasn't just making a comparison, like a spot comparison. Well, I'm equal with God on this, on the aspect of work. No, what he was saying is I am continually equal with God. And the interesting thing about this, guys, Jesus lets their claim stand. Believe me, he would have taken them on about it had it been something that he needed to address that wasn't true. They weren't spouting heresy on this. They understood he was making himself equal with God, and he said, so be it. Essentially, by not addressing it, he lets it stand. You know, and I grew up in a cult. I grew up in the LDS church. And we had a lot of teaching about that was just, I had to unlearn. So when I was in Bible college, I mean, I was unlearning as much as I was learning there for quite a while. And it was because, and I think I mentioned to you guys, I put a big M on the margin of my notes in my notebooks. And uh, I picked up one of my notebooks last night. I went, wow, it's been a long time since I opened this. Uh, but I would put these M's in the margin as the Lord, as the Spirit of God delivered me from another heretical Mormon doctrine. And, and they don't like passages like this. And they try to explain their way around it. Oh, well, there was this, or there was that. Same thing with Jehovah's Witnesses. Same thing with other aberrant groups that are really trying to put forth a, a Jesus that is not consistent with the Jesus of the Bible. And you've got to be careful because it's, they are very, very crafty. They have canned dialogue that they will throw at you to try to get you off-center. And if you're ever dealing with them and you need some help, I'd love to come alongside uh, not that I'm an expert on dealing with people that are in weird religions, but perhaps we can equip you with some scriptures like this that they just don't know how to handle. They really don't. So they ignore it. And that's part of the problem. When, you know, it's either you believe that God's word is inspired and inerrant in its entirety, or you don't. And if you don't, 
then you're going to be subject to picking and choosing. Well, I like that passage. I don't like that one. Well, I want to deal with this. Well, God, I'm not going to let you deal with me on that. And that's a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous place to be. We believe that God has, he's big enough to ensure that this is transmitted to us accurately. Verse 19, equality with God in power. Then Jesus answered and said to them, most assuredly, or verily, verily, or pay attention. That's what that means. I'm going to say something significant here. I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do for whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. So, yes, he's a reflection of the father, as we saw the radiance of his glory, but he's also totally dependent in, the, in one context, in the context of he's totally dependent upon the Father through the agency of the Spirit. Now, he's not dependent upon the Father for his own life. We'll get into that. But he is dependent upon hearing from the Father through the Spirit in his earthly ministry. And the reason for that is he set aside some of the powers he had as God he set aside some of the powers he had as God when he took on a body, when he took on humanity. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, uh, we read, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery uh, with, to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. I like the way that's translated in the New American Standard. It says, but he emptied himself. Taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. So Jesus set... His divine powers, a great deal of his divine powers aside in taking on humanity. He did that so that he could fully experience what it is to be a man. And therefore, as the God-man, 100% God, 100% man, he could identify with you and I. It's very important that we have that understanding. That, that he's not just a reflection of the Father, but he's dependent upon the Father through the Spirit for conducting his earthly ministry. It doesn't mean you know, this weird dependence thing that, that he had to get his power from the Father all the time. What it means is that when he was here walking this earth, he set those divine powers aside. And he took them back up, by the way, uh, after he was crucified, resurrected. So he's in harmony with the Father. He became a man just like you and I. And when you think about it, how do we conduct ourselves as Christians? What counts when I'm operating in sync with the Holy Spirit in my life? We read it again in Romans. He says, it's impossible in the flesh to please God. You can't do it. And very often, Christians fall into kind of a trap and think, well, God's there to make me a better person. No, he's not. There needs to be a death in your family, and that needs to be you. <laughs> Pretty much, that's how it is. Because he says, uh, in Romans 12, he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. What's well, one thing to die for God, but to live for him, I think, is a little more difficult. It's challenging. 
We have this flesh tearing at us all day long, and he is not here to make you a better person. He's not here to fix up your flesh. He's saying you need to die to that flesh. You need to die as a living sacrifice. That's what it means. It's to die to the old man, to die to that old nature, that nature of Adam that always rears up and wants to be heard, wants to exert my right. I want to make sure you understand my feelings are hurt. I want to understand, I want you to understand that my opinion really counts here, and we can get onto this whole deal. Fill in the blank. And be completely out of God's will. Because we're not being constrained and controlled by the Holy Spirit. That's how Jesus conducted his earthly ministry. Why? Partially as an example to you, as an example to me. That we die to ourselves and we let his life emerge in us. Why do we come here on Sunday mornings? So we can learn to live. So we can learn to think, to act, to be more like Jesus as we go. That's a process. Don't walk out of here with a dark cloud over your head and feeling condemned because you're not as much like him as you want to be. It's a healthy thing, actually, to want to be more like him, to let his word drive you to that place. Let his spirit drive you to that place of saying, Lord, I just, I know, I just got to have more of you. And I'm convinced, brothers and sisters, it's as though there's a line there and I can try to live for myself, and I'm going to be miserable, and frankly, the people around me will be too. <laughs> and I can say, you know what, Lord, I know that you're beckoning me to step over that line, to just surrender, to just say, you know what, I'm done. I shared a little of my own personal testimony on that last week, and I'm going to go into that again, but I will tell you, that that is what he's looking for in all of our lives, to say, Lord, I'm done. I bring nothing. I have nothing. I'm not here to make deals. I'm simply giving you my all. Take me and use me. Do what you will with me. I don't want to pack around this garbage I've been packing around for decades, maybe. I just want you to live through me. Let your love flow out of me and measure that that will blow people away. That's what he wants. That's what he's looking for. That's what he is waiting to create in each of our lives. And, and if you're in that place, praise God. If you're not, step over that line. Cooperate with the work he wants to do. There's no more glorious way to live. Verse 20, the father loves the son and shows himself all, th all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. I think it's interesting. I think it's wonderful that Jesus states here, the father loves the son. He's obviously speaking about himself. Jesus didn't ever have an identity crisis. You, you ever talk to somebody who says, well, I just don't know God loves me. And there's a part of me that says, hey, get over yourself. Stop feeling sorry for yourself and understand that he does love you because he has revealed his love for you. Romans 5.8, it was in our bulletins this morning. It says, well, God, but God demonstrates his own love towards us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, he didn't, you know, he saw me in my most wretched state. He saw me when I was rebelling and running the other direction. He saw these Jews that were coming down hard on Jesus. He said, I love them. I love them. It's easy to love those that are lovable, huh? 
Not so much with those that are maybe cause us to grind our teeth or maybe we find ourselves being impatient with. Understand the measure of God's love for every person. You know, and, and their behavior is not what will send them to hell. Their rejection of him, the one who stood in their place on that cross, is what will commit someone to hell. Again, we, I just, I, such a burden that we don't get all churchy about our relationship with God. That we understand the freshness and the vibrancy of his relationship with us. It is one that is based in a love that is amazing. It is un- incomprehensible, the, the measure of his love for you. Even when you are out there. The Bible tells us that what is it that draws a man to repentance or a woman? It's the kindness of God. He's not waiting with a two by four to whap you when you get out of line. And it breaks my heart when I'm counseling with someone or I'm talking with someone, they say, you know, I think God's really punishing me. And, And while I understand that in human terms, it's really, no, somebody was punished for you, but it's not you. He loves you. You may be allowing that thing in your life because he's way more interested in what he wants to do in your life than how comfortable you are at this moment. Way more comfortable. He's not here so that you can command your wallet to be full of cash. He's not here so that you can command that muscle that's spasming to unloose. He's not here. I mean, those things, it's the same thing Jesus dealt with here in the Gospel of John. They fall short of full-blown faith in him. They fall short of our understanding of him. Verse 21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, so even the Son gives life to whom he will. He's completely in sync with the Father. That's what Jesus is saying. Verse 22, Equality with God and authority. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. All right, in verse 19, he says, the son can do nothing of himself. And now in 22, he says, the father judges no one, but's committed all judgment to the son. So does that mean that 19 doesn't count? I don't think so. What he's saying is the father judges no one on his own. Again, he actually, it actually supports the, the whole premise of co-equality with the father. He's saying, He's given judgment to the Son. In verse 23, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. You ever think about that? If you don't have a right understanding of Jesus, you dishonor God. If you don't want to have anything to do with God, your life is an offense to the cross. You want to add something to salvation? Well, I'm saved by, well, I've done a lot of good things. And, and, you know, a lot of us, we know better. We've been Christians for a long time. We know it's not based on our stuff. Our righteousness, the Bible says, is as filthy rags. And yet, he says, if you're going to dishonor me, you're dishonoring him. And Again, picture these Jews. As he's 
speaking these things, at this point, they're probably trying to pick their jaw up off the ground because this was absolutely, this had never been spoken before. We read the end from the beginning here. We know the Gospel of John if you've studied it before. But this was brand new to these guys. They're seeing this rabbi from Galilee? I mean, everybody knows that the really important people are down in the southern part of the country in Jerusalem. And so this rabbi comes marching in here. He heals one guy at the pool. And now when we tell him, look, you're violating the law of Moses. And he wasn't. He was violating their idea of the law of Moses. And then he goes on and he starts talking about being 100% equal with God. And he's calling God his father. That again, that was radical, you guys. Nobody called God their father until Jesus. Nobody. And when he would pray, they would be scandalized. And, you know, face it, if you were praying and you said, well, let's pray, and you looked up towards heaven and you said, Dad, I want to talk to you. That's exactly how Jesus prayed. He was, these guys were scandalized. I mean, I would love to see the scene here because we see his side of the, the whole argument, what he's putting forth here. But you've got to realize these guys would be gritting their teeth like, mm. and it says, yeah, they persecuted him. They wanted to kill him. And they were heating up more as he spoke. There, we live in a pluralistic society as well. Just again, taking this and driving it home. To honor him is to honor the Father. To dishonor him is to dishonor the Father. We live in a society where it's, it's like, it's not even so much different brands of Christianity with denominationalism. Now, it's become it's sort of a soup out there, a spiritual soup that most of it is bad tasting. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17 says, For we are not like the many who peddle the word of God, but as from sincerity we speak in the sight of God in Christ. The word many there is many to the most part. He says we're not like the most. And again, I'm not trying to get overly exclusive here. But Jesus has some very exclusive claims. They're very narrow claims too. And oh my gosh, you mean he's not like all embracing? No, he's not. That's pluralism. All roads lead to God. Hog wash. One. It's a narrow little path. Kind of off to the side. And there are a few people that find it. But most of the people, whole pluralistic deal. And he's saying that is an absolute offense to God. Verse 24, there's stuff on it, we're not going to finish. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. I like the tense in this. Do you realize that your everlasting life, your eternal life started the moment of your salvation? It's not something that's out there. It's not something that's out there in this ethereal deal. It is a solid fact that began the moment you believed, that you truly believed and trusted him for your sins, asked him to forgive you for the life you've led and embraced him. That's what, that's what it is. And you began to live eternally at that moment. Yes, there will be a time when you will shed this body. Praise God. 
Can't wait. Older I get, the more I look forward to it. Gravity is this weird thing. But our eternal life, he says it has everlasting life. And if you've believed in him, you won't come into judgment, but you have already passed from death into life. Talk about security. It's right here. You are already on the other side of judgment. Why? It all goes back to Calvary. It all goes back to the cross. It goes back to the fact that this guy walked this earth, fully God, fully man, and went and did that and, and hung in your place. And when he died, it was the death that you and I deserved. And because he was the perfect man, death couldn't hold him. I'm looking forward to uh, the resurrection, teaching on the resurrection next month, uh, or a, a little over a month out uh, from Resurrection Sunday, Easter, whatever. And that's um, uh, just such an exciting time because we can really take and just peel back the layers of what's taking place, the transaction itself. And so looking forward to that. Verse 25, most assuredly, again, Pay attention when he says that. Most assuredly, that's the New King James. Old King James is verily, verily. I haven't figured out what a verily is yet, but that's what he says. Um, I remember one of my Bible college teachers would say that what this means, it was in the 80s, he'd say that what this means is just read it as right on, right on. So he says, right on, right on. I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. He's talking about the resurrection now. Why does John give this account of future events? We've talked about it. First, that in believing, we might have life in his name. Second, that if you are a believer, that your faith would be strengthened. It's two things. That's the reason this gospel was written. That's the reason John sat down, the Spirit of God came upon him, and he began to write. And when he did that, he tells us in, in chapter 20 the reason for it. Because he, he says, I've laid all this thing out, all these things out for you, so that you could come to believe. And if you are a believer, that your faith would be strengthened, that you would see that there is a reason for the things that you believe in, that there is a, there's a foundation couple of observations as we uh, begin to wrap up. First is Jesus raises all of the dead. In verse 25, uh, he says, I say to you, the hour is coming now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And in verse 28, he talks about, uh, we'll get there, all who are in the graves will be resurrected either to life or to condemnation. In Philippians chapter 2, again, verses 8 through 11, Paul says, the Apostle Paul, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of a, the death of a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and has given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Of those in heaven and of those on the earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow. You either bow it willingly in this life, or you will bow. 
because that one who was by design to be your savior will be the judge. He's savior and judge. We bow the knee now, or you bow the knee then. And I'm confident that people in this room have a relationship with Christ. If you don't, you need one. You need to trust him for your sins. You need to ask him to forgive you for the life you've led. You need to come into the kingdom because your knee will bow voluntarily now or under compulsion then. But every knee will bow. The second is Jesus resurrects with a word, by his word. We talked about in Hebrews chapter 1 that Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. He speaks it, and it's so. The third, this is interesting, the hour of the resurrection has come. He says in verse 25, the hour is coming and now is. What does John mean by that? With all of Jesus' miracles, we talked about this a little bit ago, he's bringing end time glory to show now what will be in the age to come. And in chapter 11, John confirms this when he raises Lazarus from the dead. Remember, he says the hour is coming and now is. When John was told, he's up again, he's up in Galilee. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived in Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem, just on the backside of the Mount of Olives. Um, word came to him that Lazarus was sick. And it says in the text in John 11, we'll cover it in detail when we get there someday, um, (laughs) that Jesus waited where he was for four days. He just said, oh, really? He's sick? You need me? Okay, fine. And he stayed four days. And then he took off. He went down to the southern part of the country, went to Bethany. And Martha meets him on the road as he's coming and says, Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And he says, your brother will live. And she answers him in in 11.23. He says, your brother will rise again. And she goes, well, I, I know, I know. He'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. That's the is coming. See, he's talking about the age to come. But then he says something interesting. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me will never die. And he who believes in me will live even if he dies. So he's talking about out there to come, but he's also talking about right now. And then he goes to Lazarus's tomb. And if you remember the story, I love this story. And, and everybody's standing around and he says, Lazarus, come forth. What a scene. And there's this rustling in the grave and this guy comes stumbling out and everybody is frozen. I mean, they are stunned that this guy's been dead for four days, probably a little stinky. (laughs) Comes stumbling out of the tomb and he says, don't just stand there, unbind him and let him go. That's the now is. So the hour is coming and now is where Jesus will do his resurrecting work. He was giving, again, a preview, a vignette of the age to come in doing that. The next thing we see is Jesus' power to raise the dead originates in himself as God. 
Verse 26, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Again, co-equality. Not an emanation of, but the real deal right in front of them. God in the flesh. There wasn't a time when Jesus didn't have life in himself. That's not what's being said here. It's being reinforced here. It's not being stated as though God has now chosen the Father's chosen for the Son to have life in himself. This is an eternal concept. This is an eternal thing. Because Jesus, again, he's not a stream from God, but he is God. Verse 27. And he's given him all authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. So why is he given authority to execute judgment? The Father says, no, I'm not going to handle that part. Judgment. I'm going to... I'm going to have that be what my son does. Why? Into interpretation here, but I think it's solid. He needed to be the son, a son of man or human. When we talk about the son of man, yeah, there's the prophetic thing where in Daniel he talks about one like the son of man and all that. That's fine. But generally when we read son of God, we ascribe that to Jesus' deity. When we read son of man, it's his humanity. And, and Jesus needed to be a son of man or human in order to qualify as the judge in raising men from the dead. He had to be a vulnerable man. Acts chapter 17, uh, verse 30, Luke writes, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And he's given assurance of this to all by raising him, Jesus, from the dead. Jesus is called the firstborn of the resurrection. He had to be a man in order to qualify as judge. Because he was the one who beat death. And he offered an invitation that through his vicarious atonement, one to stand in place of the other, that's what vicarious means, that men could escape death. If not, it's judgment. That's one of those things, guys, you know, I wish that hell wasn't in the Bible. And I wish judgment wasn't in there. But you know, I, I'm, I'm strangely comforted that those things are because we serve a holy God and there is a holy requirement in God that sinful flesh will not occupy his, in, the same presen in his presence. As such, he had to make a way because he loves us with the kind of love that Jesus has for these guys. Even they're sitting there dreaming up ways and how to get a hold of him to kill him and he's loving them. Why do you think from the cross he said, Father, forgive them? They just don't know what they're doing. Because he loved them to the end, to his last breath. The last thing I want to look at is eternal judgment for everyone will be in accord with, not based upon, our deeds, whether they're good or they're evil. Now, I want to make sure that you understand that. I talked about it last week a little bit. In verse 28, Jesus says, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. To those who have done good, to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil, to the resurrection of condemnation. In accord with, but not based upon our works. And 
it's not contradictory, contradictory to the doctrine that we have. It's called justification by faith. I believe and I'm justified in God's sight by faith alone. It's not because of my works. Ephesians 2 is clear on that. It's not as a result of works lest any man should boast. But it's evidence of that. Uh, in John 15, Jesus talks about himself being the vine and we are the branches. The father is the vine dresser. And he says there, he says, apart from being in Christ, that that you can do nothing. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so as we understand that, we understand that our lives lived out as Christians, that when we do something that counts, it's something that is not apart from him. So my life as a Christian will be marked by good works. It always will be marked by good works. If it's not marked by good works, I would submit there's a good chance that I don't have a relationship with him. James is very clear on that. He says, show me your faith, I'll show you my works. Because there's an empty faith, it's sort of a faith in faith that's out there, and it's not a saving faith. It's not. My life changes. If you see somebody that comes to Christ, their life changes. And if your life is not changed and you are a believer, allow him to work in you and stop resisting him in changing who you are and the way you live your life. That is a symbol. It's a sign of salvation. It's not what saves you, but it is certainly a mark of someone who's saved. Does that make sense? I want you to understand. This is a very... It's kind of a touchy subject for a lot of people because, again, false religions, they create an external framework. It's based on works. It's based on what you do. And that's not so. Without the Holy Spirit, you have to have an external framework because there's nothing inside that changes or shifts. The real deal, repenting of sin, embracing Christ as Savior and Lord, there's a shift inside. I want to now live for him because God himself has taken up residence in my heart. So we're saved unto good works. And what Jesus is talking about here, when people are saved, when he says that those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation, he's talking about that. When we look at that, think back to the Garden of Eden. We've talked about that a little bit tonight or today. And in the Garden of Eden, what was the tree that they were not supposed to eat from? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's what Jesus talks about here. Those who have done good to life, those who have done evil to judgment. When I am allowing the Holy Spirit to work in me and through me, when I am working in concert with him, when I am working in sync with the Spirit's work in my life, in my heart, I would submit to you that I am working in concert and I'm working in that sense in accord with the tree of life because I'm not being self-willed. When I am trying to figure it out myself and I want to do my own thing and I want to do this, I want to do that, I'm gonna, and, I, and I'm not even, the key, guys, is prayer. You hear me talk about this and it's so true. We are called to be people of prayer. Why? 
Two things. Number one, it moves things. Prayer moves things in the spiritual realm. No question. There's a mysterious partnership there we don't fully understand, but prayer moves things. Number two, it keeps us connected to the Father. It keeps us connected to Jesus. It keeps us connected to God. When I am moving in unison with the Holy Spirit, working in me, I am plugged in to God. I am plugged into what he is wanting to do in my life, how he wants me to treat you, how he wants me to deal with this, how he wants me to work in that area, how he wants my attitudes to be. I am not being self-willed when I'm saying, Lord, not your will, but not my will, but your will be done in my life, right? That's the tree of life. When I'm being self-willed, well, I'm just gonna, I, I got this handled. I got this figured out. And I, I come up with my own devices and plans and all that. That's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And man inherited that in the garden. That's not God's design. That's why we're to be people of prayer. To stay plugged into the head. As we look at these passages here in the Gospel of John, we're going to look next week at the witnesses. that are the, There are three, again, three different witnesses to the ministry of Christ. And as we've looked here and we look at Jesus being equal with God, we see that by design, he has set himself in a place where he is absolutely opposed to the religious establishment of his day because they had totally departed from God's intention for his people. Jesus came, yes, to go to the cross, but he came to set things straight to demonstrate the way to live. He came to demonstrate that he has the authority to do these things. That's why we're seeing that he's putting forth that he is the Son of God, that he is the Son of Man in these passages. They're not just so that we can have a deeper understanding, yes, but they're there to impact our lives. And as I yield to him in greater measure, I'll grow in my relationship with him. And as I grow in my relationship with him, his light shines brighter in me and through me as I love people around me. It all comes back to love. When I'm loving my brother, I'm loving God and I'm loving my brother or my neighbor as I love myself. Jesus says on these two, not three, because I don't have any trouble loving myself. Hang the law and the prophets. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these uh, brief glimpses into your word and this uh, look at the Gospel of John. Pray, Father, that... Um, as we leave here, that you would continue speaking uh, to each of us, Lord, that we would ponder the things that uh, you've put forth this morning, the things you've touched our hearts over. We pray, Father, for that conforming work to the image of your Son to continue. We yield, Lord, to your work in our lives, in our hearts. We pray, Father, that, that would, there'd be one aim in our lives, and that would be to glorify you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this morning. We pray uh, that you would go before us the rest of this day. And we commit it unto you in Jesus' name. Amen.